Hello and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This fourth series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of music, and we're looking at two aspects of this question. Firstly, new ways of both creating and performing music, and secondly, how to properly monetize and value music in these changing times. So for this episode, I'd like to introduce to you Imogen Heap, uh, and she can talk to us about all of this based on her previous experience. She's talking to us from, uh, from London, and hi, Amy. Hello. Very nice to be here with you today. Um, known you for a very long time. This is great. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we first met ages ago and we worked together on, on various things. And most, I'm sure most of our audience will know you, but you're a, a performer, songwriter, a technologist. Um, you're involved in all aspects of this, entrepreneur. Mom. So can you can you do a mum? Yes, a mum as well. Um, That's the hardest job of all. Yep, yep. Uh, can you just say a little bit about your past and and you know what you do? Sure. So yeah, at the core of everything is music, really. Um, but it seems like the older I get, the further away I get from actually creating the music, and the more I want to get involved in the tech to solve the problem of the music industry, or or not necessarily just the industry, but solving the problems of where technology stops you getting up to more human things, um, like more time to be creative or less time fiddling around with leaves or whatever it might be. Um, just trying to simplify life admin equally more creative time. So that's generally, I would say, like overall or overall the things that I do is trying to do that. Um, but yeah, in the beginning, it's just about playing music, you know, improvising lots of the piano and writing songs and putting together beats and a, ca- a cassette tape to tape in the beginning. And then later, like learning on an Atari, just kind of finding an Atari at school and diving into that. And then a bit later when I was 15, kind of having a go at the uh, recording studio and learning about local you know, like recording techniques or basically engineering with a desk because we had desks back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just doing my own thing, really, and signing a few deals, terrible deals in the beginning, working on some albums. I've done, I think, five albums, uh, and one of them with my dear friend Guy uh, as a frou-frou, a group. And, yeah, now I have a child, my name is Hackney, and I have a residential studio that we rent out um, and running a few different companies, mainly non-profit, um, to try and, yeah, solve some problems. Excellent. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is about that process of making albums. So I've seen the way that you make the way you make albums is is has become more and more radically different to the way that that kind of we think of albums being made, where you all decamp into a studio for a month or so and, and work every day and end up kind of with this album. Can you talk both about Ellipse and and about Sparks and the way that you did those? Yeah, so um, so essentially, yeah, all the other kind of albums previous to Sparks, sorry, previous to Ellipse were like that kind of typical get in a studio, beaver away. I mean, it's never taken me a month, <laughs> but I do believe it can happen, even if it did. <laughs> um, but it generally, it took me a year uh, to produce and fund and release my first record. Oh, sorry, not, not even to release it, I think it took me another year to release it. Um, so that was Speak for Yourself. And that was the moment when that album kind of lift, lifted me into independence. Um, and I never looked back so that was like a big one for me and that's got you know the big hit on it uh, silent hit of hide and seek um, so I got back from touring that record and was just kind of terrified of going back into the studio alone making another record and I wanted to do things differently so yeah I, I went on a little tour uh, a few a few months um, with my laptop wrote some songs came back and um, just kind of got engaged with my fans a bit more really uh, I mean, I was pretty engaged with Speak for Yourself because I didn't have an A and R or anyone kind of breathing over my neck. So I needed some compa- some com- some companionship. Um, had a nice bunch, and then yeah, when I got back, I built my own studio, 
with a, a nice group of people and during that process had these video blogs and would you know chat to my fans quite a lot through there and sometimes you know ask for their advice on what they thought should be changed or you know uh just again kind of a and ring you know what do you think um and I was really I really enjoyed that process and Twitter kind of happened during that album and uh this other thing called 12 seconds and obviously YouTube was there so there was all these kind of different ways of connecting with the fans which I really enjoyed um but actually what it started to do that album was to kind of draw me further away in a way from my message board where they had more of that one-to-one kind of closer relationship and then it was this one to many many um mm-hmm. became a little bit um difficult to to manage and then sparks was about i didn't want to be on my own in the studio again um i really wanted to create music where it would be i could explore different projects different avenues different ideas different technologies to get me out of this like quite closed environment of me in a studio making a record on my own and um so with sparks Every single song had a different project. And during that, I, I sometimes went to different countries. So one of them was for a film uh, across Bhutan with some uh, crazy fit people. I wasn't one of them. Um, and one of them was uh, kind of exploring into gestural music wear, which was the beginning of this uh, project called the Mimu Gloves. Another was to explore generative and reactive music, uh, where we started a running app, but we didn't finish it. And that was called Runtime. Um, and then another one called Lifeline, which is the beginning of the, re- the record, where I asked my fans to send in sound seeds on the first day. And I had these windows of an hour every four, every six hours. So we kind of get the time zones. And people send in all kinds of things like a Pomeranian dog or a window patio door sliding across. And all of these sounds, well, quite a lot of them ended up in this song called Lifeline, which uh, was also crowdsourced word cloud Um whatever was people what were people thinking of at that time and during that time it was the Sendai earthquake um and so I ended up writing a song about a character that I'd read in a newspaper um so yeah I've done lots of projects with the fans um but that period for me was like oh wow okay so there's like people out there who make stuff like makers and hackers who can create things and out of code out of nothing and I just before that album everything was kind of off the shelf for me I didn't realise you could get under the hood and take part in the, in the change. And it was a big shift. Um, yeah. And yeah. as a result of that, I've done a lot less music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, so that, um, you know, the crowdsourcing bit, the, the getting your fans, I think on that track you did, you know, um, music seeds, you did, I think you even outsourced the the soloed in in it yeah that's right yeah so we had the period in the middle um where it it would have been nice to have a solo so yeah kind of did shout out and said look here's the chords here's the here's the section play something over it and um we have a violin a cellist no a viola player um and somebody did like a kind of dancey bit in it yeah it's really cool um and they all get you know ppl um Mm -hmm. uh or you know performer royalties um, yep. And then we also crowdsourced the video, which projected onto my naked back um, and my naked and my face, or well, obviously my naked face. <laughs> a bit weird. Well, most of us haven't got naked faces anymore. We've got masked faces. Um, so yeah, and then I think we crowdsourced the images for all of the records. Actually, for all of the, mm-hmm. I think we did crowdsource at least quite a lot of them. Yeah, it was super fun. We did like some of them came and took part in the video. One called Pedersey. They're all like in my garden and these big kind of see-through orbs. Um, taking part in that video um, and they they, yeah for me the machine they ended up peddling the power for this green uh, like um, in the garden this massive tent and fans were like peddling the power for this first ever live performance of a song with gloves well my yep, I was I was there I was one of the peddlers <laughs> <laughs> thank how you did, for your pedal back how did, um, the process i mean you give up control to some extent when you're when you're putting out um for ideas uh, uh, was that a big shift or was that something you were very comfortable with um i feel like it wasn't giving away that much i mean i i'm starting to do it more and more i find it hard to let go of the music side um but actually there's an app that i i love called endless with three s's mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. with that have um 
done quite a lot of collaborative music with the fans and or whoever happens to be on the app um, in whatever group or whatever room. Um, so that's that's been really fun. Um, just starting to let go of it, really. Um, but yeah, it. I think the sound seeds for me. I really love creating music when there are limitations, like the worst thing in the world. That's kind of why I wanted to do that song like that. That was to start the record. I wanted to give the baton to the fans and say, okay, you're starting this record. You're mm-hmm. sending the in seeds. I'm going to be there in my dressing gown at 6am, ready for the onslaught of sound. Yeah. And then by the end of the 24-hour period, I had the kind of basis of a song. Uh, there was a kind of sound key and tempo that emerged out of certain of the sound seeds. And then there was, I think that was like, 700 sound seeds or something and they're like really short um so no in a way that's kind of similar to how I would make music except it's a lot more complicated there's a lot more things involved and people to keep track of and make sure you credit and all that but it was really fun and it just didn't feel so kind of like okay so I spent a whole however long kind of getting my studio and my head prepared and now I've got to make the music um it just made it much more fun and much less pressure and there's mm-hmm. something about involving the fans along the way that, again, it feels more creatively liberating because they're hearing it as you go. So mm-hmm. you're kind of going this way, maybe a direction you haven't gone before. But because they're in the room, in inverted commas, it feels like it's OK to do that instead of like just suddenly releasing a record. And everyone's like, what's she done? That's completely crazy <laughs> diversion. Um, not that it ever is a diversion I try to make it a diversion but then I end up just sounding exactly like myself (laughs) (laughs) so um, another track from that album was the listening chair that we kind of worked on together um, from a tech point of view where you put this you took the chair around the world and had people um, contribute their thoughts about the song that hadn't been written can you talk a little bit about that track (laughs) yeah so originally it was a commission from uh, Eric Whitaker who wanted me to write a five-minute piece for his prom. And I love the Royal Abbott Hall and I love the proms. I've got, a, from a child, we used to go, like, get the, the tickets that you can get cheap and just, like, stand or lie down in the central arena. And I just love that space. So I said, definitely. It's how awesome is that? So there's me thinking, oh, how difficult can an a cappella piece be? You know, just, there it is. It'll be fine. I'll just create something out of thin air. Um, but then I was like, where am I going to start? What am I gonna, what's it going to be about? So again, kind of turned to the crowd. I thought, I wonder if there's some like overarching, uh, like missing piece of music that people are, are yearning for. Maybe something about the environment or something about let's just all get along, you know, or let's just live in the moment or whatever it might be. But of course, there wasn't that. Um, and But what was interesting was that as people sat in the chair and we heard their answers, um, we discovered that kind of different age groups were interested in different things and I found that as I grew older um I would also be like yeah that did that was kind of how I felt when I was a teenager or that's kind of how I felt in my early 20s or that's what happened when I you know felt like I needed to start having thoughts about family um and so with that took these uh these ideas and their inspiration and made a song that every seven years of my life is represented by a minute, which conveniently at the time I was 35, and it needed to be a five-minute piece of music, so five sevens of 35, um, and there we go. So that was the uh, the premiere of that song was um, scored out and then performed at the proms with Eric Whitaker and his amazing choir that he pulled together. In fact, it wasn't fully finished. Um, the end of the piece of music is when is getting all my fans and my family or anyone who's around me at the time to say who am I now so that's actually how it ends but really how it ends is when I die because every seven years I need to write another minute and I'm already nearly two years overdue to my next minute well I'm a year and a half overdue so I really need to get to it but um my 30 my my 43rd year was shocking uh my well my 42nd year going into my 43rd was pretty shocking and I just couldn't write about it <laughs> so I, I will get around to it yeah 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 I, I remember that you you said you were going to add another um minute every seven years that's right and it's it was a fascinating process and Eric Whitaker, for those of you that uh, haven't heard of him is a fantastic choral composer but also is behind the uh, internet choir where people come together um and originally contribute 
pieces, recorded pieces, which are then stitched together. But then as technology became more advanced, they were able to do it live. And obviously in the last year with the pandemic, people have been doing that kind of anyway. Um, mm. So, and it, it was a fascinating piece. So moving on and talking about the Mimu gloves, I kind of know a bit about your, that was how we actually first met because I was really interested in the idea of gestural control um, and had seen people doing gestural control, but hadn't really seen something that was a convincing music piece. And, and then we met at TED you know, about 10 years ago or something, and, and you were doing an early piece with the Mimu gloves. And yeah. it was the first piece I'd seen that made sense musically as well as tech-wise. So what was behind you getting involved with all of that? Um. Well, that was the moment really where I was like, ah, you can develop these, your own ideas and create a thing. You don't need like, I, I thought that to create something anywhere like that, you would have to have like a bunch of scientists in lab coats and it would, it's this very kind of closed world. Um, but I just didn't know about this maker universe of people and hackers and just creating things out of thin air and bits of wire and circuit boards. I was like, how? Why, why has nobody told me about this? I just lived in this kind of, you know, tunnel vision, make a record, go tour, make a record, go tour. Never really kind of veered outside of that and now can't, can't put me back there. Um, <laughs> so really it just came out of, um, most of these things actually come out of frustration, <laughs> just like wanting to do things a bit differently. Um, and I would be touring and I, I love um kind of sampling my voice or sampling whatever's going on on the stage and creating stuff live I don't I don't like having a lot of backing track if I can help it um I like you know working with the musicians and creating a new experience it's not like a, trying to be a copy of the record because let's face it I'll never I'll never manage that um so they're often new beasts and actually the kind of moment it just I was like I had so much equipment on stage with me I had like sensors like these boards that I would stand on to kind of stop and start record and the, all these wires everywhere and I'd have sensors over here and a thing on my piano and a thing by the drums and I'd like be running around it's been ages setting it all up but really all I wanted to do was just wherever I went I just wanted to record a thing and that's it you know that, that was the basic mm -hmm. thing or maybe I wanted to like lift the volume of something but I always had to go back to base station and I always had to have all this heavy kit that would take forever to set up um, and then a little moment came when I saw um, I think it's Thomas Block um, came to record some wine glasses and I think it was Thomas Block. I have, to, I have to find out for sure. Anyway, on this person's, this percussionist's uh, wrists were some lapel microphones and they'd stuck mm -hmm. them on with little fluffies um, and were, you know, going around the rim of the wine glass and the sound would go into the microphone in their wrists. In their... So I was like, that's genius. I should just have some wireless microphones and like have some packs attached to my belt and I could just have some microphones so I don't have to have all these microphones everywhere so whenever I go to play the hang or the imbira all these different percussive things or I wanted to play my whirly you know mm -hmm. a tube that kind of the sound comes down into your wrist or play a guitar or the drums you know I'd have the sound where I went but then what I didn't have was the ability to control the sampler uh, or my, my computer so that moment of aha came when I went to the MIT Media Lab and my new friend at the time, Kelly Snook, who was currently working at NASA, but doing a, um, uh, an, an artist in residence sonifying the solar system, as you do, mm -hmm. uh, at MIT Media Lab, invited me to one of these open days, except it wasn't really an open day and I wasn't supposed to really be there. But I didn't know that at the time. So there I was. But they were kind of sneaking me around because Todd Macover, um I don't think they really want to be there. Um, but anyway, I was there. Um, and I met Ellie Jessup, um, this amazing creative technologist. And she was developing a, a glove with a partner of hers. And they called it the VAMP glove. I don't know what the acronym stands for, but the AMP. And what she did was she showed me her singing. So Kelly was like, you're going to love this. So she sang something just like, la, whatever. And then the moment that she clasped her uh, index finger and her thumb together, to pinch mm -hmm. she gave the computer her glove she had a glove on a long glove lots of wires and clicked a thing you know pressed her fingers together and the moment she pressed her fingers together that nanosecond would then um recognize the tone of the voice at that moment and then would synthesize a, a wave to create a sound a synthesized sound like, Ooh, 
And then with her, uh, then she would make a vibrato, you know, as if she was doing vibrato on a string, like meeting mm-hmm. her hand up and down. And that would make it oscillate going, and I was like, kaboom, my head just went crazy with the ideas. I was like, oh my God, you could actually wear the sensors. You know, I just never considered gloves, just never, ever thought about it. I was thinking about body suits and this stuff mm-hmm. and connect, but I never thought of gloves. And there was just such a massive shift in my brain. And I was like, got to figure out how to do this. Ellie, we've got to do this. But Ellie was really tied to the MIT Media Lab and they couldn't, they didn't want to develop it with me because they had like a thing with the opera that they were doing with Todd. So I was like really deflated. Um, and I was like, how am I going to make this? You know, I've got to do this. I've got to create this system for music. They were doing it as a performance for something that went on in the opera. But I was like, I want to do a whole world of creating music with just gloves. We could do all these things. So the only person I knew was Tom Mitchell, this um, university lecturer, uh, teacher at the University of West England who I'd worked with once before, and I just rang him up. I was like, I want to make music with gloves, and you've got to help me. And so he got £10,000 from the University of West England to buy a couple of pairs of optical gloves from a company called 5DT in Germany. And that was the beginning of our project. And with that, he created the, a, a neural network that um, recognised postures or rec- recalled a posture that you'd made. You'd press record, and the next time you pull up a fist, it knows it's a fist. Um, and then we would map things to those. Um, but very quickly, I think maybe that's what you saw. I don't know. I don't know which TED you saw, but um, we did a few TEDs. And one of them was literally just like static. It didn't have any uh, accelerometers or movement direction, anything like that. It was literally like posture, posture, posture. And so with that, I could at least, you know, record and play. So I could mm-hmm. I could use my lapel microphones and I could record and play stuff. But then immediately, as soon as you've reached the first peak that you could see, then you see this whole other vista of mountain peaks. You're like, but now I want to do that and that and that and that and that. So then we had to bring in, you know, somebody who could develop a board or who had a board where we could have accelerometers and we could have gyroscope and directions and accelerometer peaks for drums. And then we wanted lights for feedback and buzzers for feedback. And it grew and grew and grew. And eventually it was like this crazy entangled thing attached to my back with wires. And it was like really hard to get on or get off. Um, And then it was needed that, I mean, that was the version that we used for me, the machine, the live performance. Um, And then we brought in some team to specifically Adam Stark to develop software so that I didn't need a whole team of crazy, amazing people every time I wanted to write a song. Um, Mm -hmm. So we had to develop the software to allow me to do it myself. Um, And then, yeah, we brought in the team over time and we didn't think we'd end up in a commercial space, but we did. And so now we make the gloves um, and Adam leads it. And that original team are still very much there. Um, And we have, I think, a couple of 300 or so glovers around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, We've just launched Glover, which is our software, which is, amazing so you can use elite motion or your phone or you know uh, other things to to connect it to yeah it's it's it was a fascinating process to watch and and one of the things i was really interested in um was was your wish to kind of get out behind from behind the technology and to be able to to have your audience kind of experience how you were making music from from a visual sense as well and and I mean at, at that early performance it was I was struck by how difficult that was given that you were uh, generating absolute pitch by by exactly where your hands were and kind of as a as a drummer so not someone who normally works in pitch it was like you've got to have perfect pitch to get that right oh well um, you see there's sneaky things going on that you don't know about and this is the <laughs> difficult thing was like how do we create a scale within mm-hmm. um so you're kind of locking into notes so I wasn't playing it like a theremin like right. Ooh, you, I mean you can um but no that's one of the things like you you don't want to be thinking like I've got to hold exactly Mm -hmm. still to create this note you want to have some human movement flexibility so we that was why we brought adam in was like how can you create an instrument machine you know Mm -hmm. so that we can lock into different tones and uh keys and modes so that was the first bit of work which we thought would probably take a few days and like took a month um and but then he was also developing all this other stuff and now he's ceo of the company (laughs) so we thought oh just be a couple of days work and you know eight years later there he is um 
so yeah I mean that's the thing when people see it they think they kind of think oh that's kind of underwhelming in a way because it's like well of course when you make a drum fist it's going to play a drum or of course when you like do your you like you've got your index finger and the rest of it's closed and you're kind of playing a hi-hat like of course Mm -hmm. that would do that so in many Mm -hmm. ways it's like it's just intuitive that's what you think should happen or when you raise your arm up something would get louder or wider or longer um and when you get closer then it would become smaller and more filtered or you know however so it's just an innate kind of gestural language that we have um that we are make allowing you to do in as a human to be able to actually do what feels natural um right yeah, yeah. so in, in a way it looks kind of underwhelming <laughs> just one one little tiny rabbit hole i want to go down um hopefully not for too long but one of the things i was really interested in at the time and i wonder what progress has been made yeah. is developing a gestural language in yeah. the sense that for example apple with the kind of iphone and ipad and things um popularized they didn't develop but they popularized the kind of a pinch and zoom and rotate and stuff mm-hmm. um to the, the extent that even my mum know knew how to do that but it, at that time there was no unified gestural language so there was no mm-hmm. kind of volume up volume down kind of has there been any progress in that or does every system have its own series of gestures um well the, because actually what happens with the gloves is we don't decide how you want to map things so it doesn't mm-hmm. come out of the box like up means up down means low you know so right. it actually what ends up emerging is just what feels natural and time and time again obviously you want to create a drum how you feel like you pick up some drumsticks like mm-hmm. or you mm-hmm. want to make a crash with slaps you know it's a, or you, and you do it above because it's a higher yep. sound so yep. actually what's emerging is just what feels how anyone would imagine that they might play something um Mm. and so we are seeing a gestural language emerge because it's already there you know it's already in us and there are technologies like the leap motion like the gloves um Mm -hmm. like the myo wristband um Mm. that are just allowing you to be human when you're interfacing with technologies that are a screen or you know uh something like that um but more and more you know we won't need the gloves we'll just need Mm -hmm. like heat sensing cameras or you know an ir camera or um there's something else a movement of air i don't know quantum air movements um so but so really the kind of the magic in what we do that the where we really really focus a lot of our time is how to how do you as a human as a musician make it feel as natural as possible and Mm -hmm. and make it as easy for you to create your own language your own um kind of second skin your own natural tendencies is what wanting to how to do things and most people do things quite similarly but the things that are weird are like how do you you know i mean moving from one thing to another you know i could just go left and right so or up and down but it's something like click that button over there which is just a button which doesn't relate to anything else it's just a button you know that Mm -hmm. actually that's harder because that's just a button you know we're used to Mm -hmm. it being a button but if it's like catch my voice um Mm -hmm. then you would just feel like you're kind of grabbing you know like catching a frisbee or something um and again that's down to you as the as the user to create that mapping um yeah and it's super easy to do so i think that's the the challenge not a challenge but i think what will need to start to happen is yeah we'll need to kind of identify this global gestural language as some kind of you know uh set thing that will emerge and then we'll have to figure out how to read it um mm-hmm. how to write it how to recreate yeah, it how to score uh, written it. language mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or a symbolic yeah yeah that, i mean that's fascinating and then there was the kind of um manipulating the sound so adding reverb and bringing it in again and panning it and the 3d stuff that that you've since done with um touring with B&B Soundscape. Yeah. But, but just after that album, Sparks, you then became a mum, and that's, that added yeah. another dimension to your life. So, <laughs> and then my hands were busy we to... doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But talk to me a little bit about that and, and how that affected things, Annette. Wow, I'm still getting over it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was just, yeah, earth-shatteringly different, everything, overnight. I had this like ridiculously 
um, just impossible thought of what it might be. I imagined, you know, that kind of the image of a baby sleeping soundly. You'd have all these hours to talk to your friends and catch up on things, you know, that you'd have this like baby that would just sleep, sleep, sleep. And I naively just thought, well, of course, that's what our baby's going to be like that. And we're going to have all this time. So I carried on working as if it was just normal. And I'd like occasionally breastfeed and then the baby would go to sleep and it would have a little play and have some food. And, you know, it would just, that was what it'd be like. But it wasn't like that. <laughs> and some some parents experience extreme kind of colic and endless crying and it nearly breaks you apart. And that is what happened to us. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it was actually quite traumatic. Um, mm. And I wasn't prepared for it mentally or physically. I had just no sleep for the longest period of time. Um, and me and my partner were just like torn apart and, <laughs> but we have this beautiful child, um, Scout, who's adorable and we love her to pieces. Um, and of course it's worth every single moment of, of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did massively, uh, change things for me, but the, what happened essentially was I just couldn't get in the studio. So the, the thing which I'd done my entire life, the one constant in my entire life was I would make music when I wanted. And I would do what I want when I wanted to. I never had somebody saying, you must do this and this. Maybe when I was like 18 and I signed my first record deal. But other than that, it was like, I just was running to my own beat. And then there was this other beat, this other heartbeat, Mm -hmm. which was not allowing me to be, to go at my own beat anymore. Um, And I found it really hard, like mentally really hard, because I realized that how I work things through is through music. I work things through by playing the piano, um, by writing songs, by thinking, by creating, whether that ends up anywhere or not. But that process is the way that I stay sane. Yeah. And I didn't have that. And mm-hmm. it really made me a bit crazy. Um, and actually, the only way that I could keep myself, I couldn't stop myself. You know, I still wanted to make stuff, but I couldn't do the thing, which was how I normally kind of create that level. Um, so I started imagining a future music industry um, in my spare time, like in my moments of breastfeeding Scout or just trying to endlessly time, yeah. rock her to sleep. Oh, my God, I've got like massive arm muscles. Um, so actually, that's where this next project, this big project that's been the last six years of my life, um, which is the Creative Passport. As it, that's what it's ended up being, this digital identity for music makers. But initially it was like this imagination of a future music ecosystem where stuff was just fair and it made sense and it was transparent and you didn't have to chase people 24-7 and you didn't have to have a whole team of people just to get try and find a way to get paid or get money or be discovered. Um, so, And that initial spark came, again, out of frustration, chatting to my dear friend Zoe Keating, who I believe you've had on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was the one who introduced me to this idea of blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the underlying technology uh, under Bitcoin at the time, that's all we had. Um, and then kind of dived into this world of possibility of new tech and excitement and a whole, you know, hundreds of people that I met where the problems of the music industry were something exciting for them because they could they could find a, a solution. Together we could find solutions about payment, about uh, good data, you know, authenticated data timeline of information um that i just wasn't ever seeing or getting from the record industry because they have lots of vested interest shall we say in, in it being the way that it is mm-hmm. so yeah yeah so going i'm giving back <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a whole new business whole new horizon came out of it mm-hmm. so uh yeah i really wanted to kind of get through the first bit in order to talk about this um and can you tell us really what Creative Passport is? So Creative Passport is, at the moment, it's a platform that's in beta. So if you're a music maker and you're listening to this, you can already go there now, creativepassport.net, and sign up. And what you do when you sign up is you put your name, your date of birth, that's all private. You go in and you create yourself um, your persona, or you know whether you're a producer, an engineer, whatever you are, it doesn't matter, just write your name about how you're recognized in the music industry as it stands if that's just your name like me then that's fine but if it's like dead mouse or whatever it might be then chuck that in there because that's the things that's going to help you be discovered and connect you 
to your music world, your music commercial world. And then in there, basically, is everything that you could possibly want to share with a service, um, somebody out there in the public who might want to know your biography, somebody who's interviewing, like you, Graham. Um, it could be uh, your skill set if you're looking you know, for a job. Um, it could be cross-referencing information such as your skill set that you might be a mother as well as a you know, a speaker. And those two, that combination might be a job for you. Um, or as it turned out for me before the Creative Passport, um, being a mum and a musician and somebody who had their own studio equaled a job for C&G Baby Club, which, uh, which is why I wrote a song called the, um, the Happy Song with a bunch of scientists. So it's these exact intersections of our unique abilities, our unique interests, our past history of all the things that we've done, our collaborations, our inspirations. It's those unique intersections which are the things which help people find us, which are the things which get us jobs. So it could be my interest in gestural music, in gestural technology, gestural wear. It could be my slight interest in these beginning, early beginnings of developing an AI for myself that could get me a job with, I don't know if I wanted it, Google or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. It's a way to for people to understand your full self um, and to generate meaningful collaborations whether that's with a brand or with another artist um, or going on a tour or being a support act or whatever it might be finding the new music for some vegan shoe company because you're vegan I don't know Um, it's it's those cross sections because aren't we just all a bit fed up of you know scrabbling around for the scraps of streaming money Um, you know, that's always going to be a tiny, tiny percent. We're never going to return back to CD sales. And even then they were inflated and they were bad for the environment and lots of other things. So, you know, this is a chance for us to put ourselves at the centre of our world um, and instead of always be an afterthought for services, not because they want to create us as an afterthought, but because it's really hard to discover us, to find us, to market to us. We are at the end of an email or a LinkedIn page or a Twitter feed. We're not anywhere standardized to be able to go and get that data that people need to help discover us so there's this missing layer essentially and that's what the creative passport hopes to at least inspire even if it's not the one you know i'm sure there'll be many of these things but there's nothing like it right now there's no place to kind of pull pull yourself together lasso all of this information your your unique identifiers that you have with your label if you have a label or collection society or wherever it might be there's no place for that to come together to create the whole you um Mm -hmm. for your creative self now we're not talking about passport information or any of that stuff we would work with a um a verified identity you know company like yoti or you know there's a million new ones coming up here and there um to to connect your creative personality to your you know your music identifiers self Mm -hmm. to your actual self um so it's not uh it's not a service, like it's not a front-facing service. It's not a place where you can like license your music to or stream anything from. It's literally just your core useful data that other services need from you to help you not have to type it in a million times every time you sign up for something um, mm-hmm. and to give everyone your information that you need right then and there. That's what it does right now. Um, what it will do in the future is that we will integrate with as many services as we can, almost like a stamp of approval. If a, if a service is willing to integrate with the Creative Passport, we see it like a kind of stamp of approval. It's a, you know, it's a, we're doing good by the artists. We believe in putting them, you know, where they should be um, and, you know, and allowing us to, to come together in time and formulate movements or, boycotts or whatever we want to do you know like change just change things um because we can get organized to do that together but that would create that would need a chat function you know so there's these other things don't exist yet um at the moment it's just about putting our flag in the sand and going here we are and here's all our amazing awesome data and now use services can start to develop for us and work with us directly and allow us to stitch up all the gaps about the data that's not there. You know, what's that correct spelling? Why is that saxophonist not being credited? Why does it say that person wrote my song when I wrote my song? Um, mm-hmm. Allowing all of that, allowing you as the verified creator to go in and change that data. You know, 
in existing databases where at the moment you can't because there's like a string of people you have to go through and they're not interested in you changing some data because it costs them more money than it's going to get you paid. So we need to find a way to make it easy for people to do the right thing. And that means sometimes doing the job ourselves, but at the moment we can't. Right. So, um, so it's a digital identity that, that, um, that captures your, what it is you do, the skill sets you have, the experiences you have. Um, I was talking to a guy called uh, Glenn Rowe in another one yeah. of these episodes, and, and he was, we were talking about how within the music industry, people are only too willing to help each other, mm-hmm. but people don't really know that. So, mm. so kind of particularly from outside the industry, it's tough to, to, to ask for help. It's tough to know who to ask for help. Mm. And in some cases, in the old days, the record labels sort of did that because they knew mm. everyone and, um, or they knew their own, if it was their own group of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, you know, they, they knew, I don't know, the graphic designers they worked with to do album covers or the, you know, the yeah. pluggers they worked with to push the music or whatever it was, the session musicians or, yes. or whatever. Um, and this is how much of this, I mean, you mentioned blockchain. Is, is there a commercial element to it? Can you, can you license people from within the community to do stuff? And is there a mechanism of paying them for doing that? So at the moment, there's none of that. There's actually no mm-hmm. blockchain element at all. Um, right. We ended up going a different route because we had little funding and we wanted to see what we could do now just by allowing musicians to add non-sensitive data um, to kind of be a beacon and show the services what we have to start mm-hmm. to try and get rid of this chicken and egg situation. Yeah. Um, allowing musicians to it's also like extremely useful to just get yourself organized like write your biography get all your mm-hmm. different verifier identifiers that you have in one place it's really useful for my team um you know if anyone wants anything i just go there's my public page you go and find it yourself um yep. so but there's like lots so much to do um i mean i'm very excited about web3 and yeah. um, the possibility of creating maybe a DAO, like I'm very interested in a decentralized mm-hmm. autonomous organization as the creative passport, you know, that mm-hmm. every single person who's putting in data gets to decide what the next features are or how something might be integrated or what we don't want to connect with or how much of our resources, collective resources, go into developing a certain thing. Or do we want to pull together and create our own service um because we feel actually this bit of the ecosystem is missing let's do that you know there's so much that we could do if we come together um and there are obviously not everybody wants to get into you know the next feature of a service um but there are plenty of musicians who would and i would be Mm -hmm. one of them and there's a bunch of people sign up to the creative passport who also would and i think there's something about empowering and being able to see a history of that um that contribution and being able to in time pay that back i don't know how we don't know how yet but we're definitely going to do a hack week very soon as we did a hack week six years ago and Mm -hmm. ended up being the first piece of music on the on the blockchain using smart contracts to pay people with this song tiny human which is the song about scout during colic um so now it feels like there's a big new space and lots and lots of musicians kind of you know a kind of eyebrows raised at this NFT space. What does that mean? Yep. Um, lots of the industry kind of going, oh, wait a minute, we're missing out here. Um, and what are they going to do? You know, and I'm, I'm nervous that we're going to miss a chance unless we come together um, and kind of show ourselves in our many, many thousands that we are here to be taken seriously and we're here to be directly dealt with. Um, I'm worried that we're going to have another problem with the music industry not understanding the value of this technology and trying to create walls around it quickly. Um, And then the the innovation time, which we need um, to explore and try to create our own solutions will be lost. Mm. Um, So it really is, uh, it feels like quite a, a, a real moment in time where we have a chance to really build a thing that makes sense. We have a chance to together collectively perhaps even fund um, a decentralized kind of data set of songs um, to get different companies involved and almost like kind of what I heard Google Maps did where 
they were like, okay, you and you and you, you've got all this map information. If you come in now, um, then you can take part in Google Maps and it will all work out for everyone. But if you don't, I'm afraid we're going to make it anyway. Um, yep. And then you'll be out of business. Um, so maybe there's something there that we can help create this space that makes sense for us, create a layer of songs and information and be able to author into that as the, you know, the creators and a publisher can do the same and a label can do the same. But we have no way to do our bit. So, mm -hmm. you know, labels can sort out their stuff because they've got lawyers and this and that. But we're all individuals. We don't have yeah. often the resources all the time. We're like trying to make money just by doing a gig that's going to bring in like 50 quid if we're lucky. So mm -hmm. we don't have those kind of resources. But if we come together and now there's this chance that people are developing DAOs, kind of collective groups of people with the same interest to make a thing happen and it's becoming more the norm, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to start to see, well, I actually heard it on Holly Hand and Matt Dryhurst, um, Interdependence. <laughs> they were chatting with, I think, somebody from Foundation DAO, which is like yep. a group of people who uh, collectively buy NFTs um, mm -hmm. and move the art space forward. Um, that, you know, in like five years from now, it'd be completely ridiculous to have a streaming service, which wasn't some form of DAO, where mm -hmm. the people putting in the time and money that those at the first, at the beginning of the risk line, the musicians, weren't some way, in a much bigger way, a part of that system, a part of that service. This kind of top-down group of people at the front making a packet of money, dividing it up amongst their VCs, fair enough, some things need to happen like that. But really, at the end, there's this tiny little straggly nothingness that's left for us. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense. And now yeah. there's a future where that completely changes. Yeah, it sounds enormously empowering in this whole series I've, I've been really heartened by the creativity of different people working out what the future looks like for, for them and for music in general mm. um, it's much much more optimistic than I went into it fearing it might be mm. um, I want to go and talk to you about NFTs in just a second and maybe a little more about DAOs but I want to um, dig into just a little bit that I'm not sure if, it, if it's a part of Creative Passport or a, mm. a side to it, which is the Life of a Song project. Oh, yeah. Um, so Life of a Song. Um, life of a Song, Life of a Song. So Life of a Song um, was one of the parts of the research that we did towards um, why the Creative Passport. Um, so Life of a Song is really just me and my team going, how does this music industry actually work? Where is my money coming from? What bits of it aren't working? Where is the opacity? Where is the where are the good services? Where does it make not make sense? Because there's a song that I wrote called Hide and Seek, and there's just such a lot of unexplained stuff. Like, where does that money from Sony meant to go? Where do they get it from? How do we know that's the right amount? Why have none of the meme, you know, none of, none of the money from any of the memes ever, I've never seen any of that. There's been like billions of plays of hide and seek and I've never seen a thing. We're just trying to understand like why, where does it come from? Where are the friction points? Where does the data get lost? So we still don't know a lot of it, <laughs> but right. we kind of, that was the point really was to kind of prove actually to the intellectual property office in the UK, they funded a tiny bit of the work um because they were like kept hearing from musicians we want transparency we want transparency and they're like what is this transparency thing where do you not have transparency so we're like okay we're gonna do this for mm -hmm. you um so we got a bunch of um students from westminster university and carlotta the creative passport now ceo mm -hmm. she led the team to really try and get under the hood of the revenue for hide and seek to understand where the flow where how does the flow happen from where to where to where what are these different licenses? You know, what does MCPS do that PPL doesn't, mm -hmm. that PRS does? Mm -hmm. that in, you know, what's the publisher get? What does the label get? What's all the splits? Um, and across every country around the world, they're all different. Yeah. They're, every single one is different. And we don't know the splits because the splits aren't told to us by the PRS or by, you know, the PPL because they're private deals. So it's really, really interesting to kind of, understand the immense complexity which we always knew it was complex but it's so ridiculously complex that it just makes absolutely no sense and so much money is wasted along the way by these multiple different data sets none of which are fully correct 
And guess who's paying for that at the end of the day is the musicians out of our royalties. Mm -hmm. So we've got mm -hmm. one data set over here which says one thing and they're trying to figure out that thing and they don't share it when they figured out something, they keep it on. And then there's another one over here, maybe in Spain, and they've got one and they're trying to, and they figured it out, but that took them maybe three days and they don't share that with France or, or Australia and they're all doing it and they're all taking money off of all of our royalties to do that. We need to have a place which has the verified information which we can all tap into and we can all contribute to and that we all agree on. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the life of a song, you can go to it. Um, I can't actually remember the, sorry, I can't actually remember the address. I think it's... I'll put it in the notes, don't worry. But it seems like like musicians forever have had to be their own business people. And, there's, you know, there's a, this time-honoured history of musicians getting ripped off by their record label, by their accountants, by whoever, mm. because the act of being a creator and the act of being a business person is not necessarily the same. And it's, it's kind of unfair to expect it to be. Mm. Do you see something like the life of a song or the life of an artist, if you like, being a way for musicians to be able to more easily... In, and graphically see what areas of their endeavors are prof, you know, making them money, what areas are not making them money and, mm. and help them to focus themselves. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of services. Um, there's so many different bits, you know, um, but again, it's like not, not knowing what is available right now, like having a map of the music tech industry or the music services. There's no like dashboard of all these different yeah. things and what they do. Yeah. And that's really needed. Um, but again, like, why would why would anyone do that if there's nowhere to interface with them? You know, mm -hmm. that's why we need if we have this creative passport or something like yeah. it, um, yeah. then you'll start to see a, a need for a marketplace because they'll want to interact with us and we'll want to interact with them. And then we'll be able to have some kind of understanding of, you know, some kind of visualization, perhaps of these kinds of services who allow you to deal with song splits better or these kind of services who analyze your income or these kinds of services who help you license mm -hmm. your work or whatever it might be um and we'll we desperately need that because there are there are hundreds and hundreds of services out there that are really good that are, are need users and we need to find them but they don't know how to find us and we can't find them um yep. i mean i know of a few because of what we do and we're integrating with as many as we can slowly slowly um but nobody else knows about them and it's it's this kind of situation we're both there but we can't find each other so mm -hmm. i think when that happens when the marketplace emerges and it becomes easily navigatable to find your kind of pick off your kind of your perfect music apps that you need mm -hmm. as an artist and you can also follow other people's you know you could look at my creative passport and see oh imogen's using centralized and streamliner and um, yep. this VR company called Volta to do her live shows you would be able to look at our creative passports and see how this person does it or if you're like I want to find a company to do a VR concert with then there would be yes. like 550 or you know kind of at the top and then you'd be able to cross-reference that with who are the creative passports do I follow or who I collaborated with who are using these companies and then you just got a, you know another another bit of useful information to help you make that decision so yeah, I think deeply foundational in, yeah. in what happens with everything else and and we could talk for hours and we don't have hours unfortunately <laughs> so the last thing i want to really dig into uh into with you is is nfts and your experience of of um of the nfts that you've you've issued around endless and tim tim exiles project yeah and your experiences yeah i mean um so again this is a kind of an experiment to try to understand the space a bit um, because I've been out of it for a while and I discovered um, a very messy place. <laughs> it's moving and changing every single day. New services coming up. It's hard to navigate. Um, and at the moment, there's no kind of, there's no regulation, uh, no real standard about what you should include in your NFT to protect you potentially. Um, should somebody go off and decide, oh, I've paid 20 pounds for that therefore i am allowed to do what i like with it you know there's mm -hmm. no real understanding of uh what to do there so at the moment it's yeah it's it, it can be risky um it, but it depends where you put your value i suppose if you've received five thousand dollars for a piece of music and you're like well i'm happy with that and if they want to go and remix it fine you know but i want mm -hmm. a piece of them i want some royalties from that um that's i think that's the exciting thing about the nft space is that you can define what you want to happen with your art. You mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's hard to reach people like anything, you know, it's two new tracks uploaded every second of every day. Um, it's hard to shout above the noise. And there is slightly less noise in the NFT space because obviously there's less musicians trying it out, but there's equally mm-hmm. less, much less curation um, about how to go, where to find people, how do you link your identity to a, you know, a song, how do you connect that to your Twitter, whatever, you know, what are you doing? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really hard to navigate. And I, you know, with a team, with Tim from Endless, we put together these six little short kind of improvised pieces um, with long-term collaborator Andy Khan to do the visualising. And it was really hard. Like, hardly anyone looked at them. They're like, we had 150 views or something, even though there were probably thousands of people talking about it, but actually getting people to find it and look at it and listen to it was really mm-hmm. hard. It's like that click-through ratio, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the end, we did this like slightly embarrassing thing. Well, maybe it's not. But it's just I like developing things in public. You know, it's never perfect. Um, so I was like, let's have an NFT party on Clubhouse, um, and just kind of watch the live auction end. And yep. I kind of naively thought it'd be like tons of money because I'm Imogen Heap after all. And I was <laughs> there at the foundation of, you know, music and blockchain with Ethereum all those years ago. So I thought that, you know, stupidly that we would just, money would just flood through the door. Um, sure. But the reality, because we're trying to raise money for the Creative Passport, which is where all this began. Um, and Nori as well, uh, an environmental carbon capture company who worked with farmers on the ground in the States. Um so that was the big hope. Um, but actually what emerged was no, very few people bid on it. The only person, the first person to bid on it was Guy from Disclosure, who does very well with his NFTs. He's got the space. And that's the thing. You like, you need to live and breathe it right now. You can't just like dip your toe in and expect to make some cash. You've got to properly mm. work the space and you've got to have time to work it. And you've got to have money to work it to cover the time that you're working on it. Um, mm-hmm. And some people get lucky, or not lucky, but some people you know, like Don Diablo made a, a lot a lot on, on have has made a lot on his NFTs, but that's because he spent a really long time on it and he understands the space. So I think it's like me, um, naive to think that you can just go in and make some money. It's an NFT, everyone's making money. Um, you know, point zero one percent of us are making any amount of money and the rest of us is like it's like 30 pence it's a point zero 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 three of an ether or whatever it might be but it is fun and interesting and curious to see where it's going and i i would recommend that at the time if you're curious about it just spend a few days just like looking around listen to some things Mm -hmm. on clubhouse um try to understand the space and what it means because it is a new way to interact with your fans peer-to-peer um for you to call the shots on what you want to happen with that piece of music or that experience or that dinner or whatever this nft is um it's a unique experience between you and another and there's so much that could be done there um mine was pretty boring it was like here's a piece of music this percentage goes to these people um and that's it and don diablo bought the first one for two ether um after some nudging because that was my reserve <laughs> price. Um, another guy called Pranksy, uh, who's like a really massive NFT collector. He got three out of the the rest of them. Uh, and again, I kind of nudged him. It's like, come on, you've got to pay two ether because this is going to create a passport, blah, blah, blah. So there's two left. And there's mm-hmm. like hardly any views on them. It's just, you know, you have to put the time in and I don't have the time. Um, yeah, but it was very interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, and um, yeah, I think you got, into some uh, or there was some discussion about the environment mm-hmm. environmental impact of nfts which is something i hadn't even thought about but now no not all nfts about. but some yeah yeah um depends what blockchain you're using and also you know what does ownership look like of an nft and does it encourage um like collecting in the same way as in the physical art domain where mm. where rich people buy paintings and put them in bank vaults and no one else can see them and mm. you know there's, there's a ton of questions around nfts but yeah. it sounds like you're optimistic in general about the opportunities they create i'm just grateful for you know change um i'm grateful for the chance to imagine and try things out and because it's you know i mean it could bite us all in the bum um 
because it's not a regulated space right now and the labels and mm-hmm. publishers don't have a, a hand in it, it does kind of leave us free to explore. But it doesn't mean that there might not be something coming later. Then we'll be like, okay, well, you were signed to our label at that time and you did this and that's what it is now. So we want to have £50,000. Thank you very much. You know, you never know what kind of, what kind of mm-hmm. just as much as we can uh, create that line of, um, this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and it's immutable and it can never be changed on the blockchain. Blockchain just so can the reverse of that. Okay, this happened and then you got this and this and this and this. That means that we can have this, you know. So mm-hmm. you can be just as much traced back as you can. Um, yeah, they can use yep. it against you. Um, so, but I am excited about it and um, I think it's moving very fast. It is moving very fast. I can't keep up. Um, but I, it's deeply enjoyable to feel this um, invigorated energy back in the music industry space and for artists to feel agency and it feels yeah. fun and it's it's change and that's very welcome. You know, we basically can't afford not to change. Yeah. And for many of us, we have nothing to lose, actually nothing to lose by taking part in it because there's so little elsewhere um, that it's... It's just like a breath of fresh air. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I need to be respectful of your time, even though I'd love to talk to you for another couple of hours about all of this. But are there any last thoughts? Do you have anything that we haven't talked about that you want to say at the end? Um, I mean, there's lots of things going on. I, if you're if you're a Heap fan, um, I suppose there are some people who are like, God, I like this sound. Or there's people who are like falling asleep going, gosh, she's boring. Um, but if you like, we like what we're talking about um, and the projects, you can get stuck in with us. Um, I have an app at the moment, which might end up being a DAO. Who knows? Um, a kind of creator coin, a social coin, a passion economy amongst my fans. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but right now it's an app called imagedheap.app. And you can just subscribe to like it's two quid a month. And it, you can also start taking part in the development of my AI self. If you're interested in what does the AI mean for the person, for people, you know, if you had your own personal AI, how would that represent you? How would you take part in that? Would you start to like bionically connect? Um, there's all these kinds of conversations we have in the chair every Thursday or sometimes at a weekend. And the Q&A that we have there then gets distilled down into kind of bite-sized chunks that gets added to our core text-based AI uh, called Augmented Imaging um, to further answer questions that might have already been answered. And then if they haven't already been answered, you get uh, a chance to chat to me directly in my chair, which is actually the listening chair. Um, and you can uh, contribute to my, my this AI, um, which at the moment is uh, kind of answering in the we format um, because it, they, she, he, um, Imogen, a Imogen, is a contribution of many people. Um, it is okayed at the end by me, but it's contributed by many fans. So that's also interesting. Is like how could we use the blockchain um, to make sure that all of these uh, changes are and suggestions uh, how they've contributed to this space and potentially could connect up to a, a token in time um because many fans over over the years have contributed in so many ways and it would i've always wanted to find a kind of a way to understand assuming the fans are up for it um they would obviously opt in um to a um a way for me as the artist to understand their fandom you know how far and wide does it reach so that if in time they might need, you know, a little bit of money to start a project. And I can be like, do you know what? They've supported me for 20 years. They bought that, that and that. They've been to like 20 mm-hmm. concerts. Do you know what? I'm going to give her a thousand pounds or whatever. To Imagine yeah. that kind of um, that kind of space where you could really support each other. And mm-hmm. I've got some amazing fans who are like super talented. You know, I reckon mm-hmm. between us, we could probably develop and build it ourselves. Um, so anyway, that's a long form way to say if you like what I'm up to and you'd like to take part then just go to imagingheap.app and that's the best way of uh, getting involved in any of this are there any other ways in any other ways for people to contact you or contact there are actually some kind of amusing ways people have been contacting me recently um I have this thing that I use called cameo which is um a way that if you want to like have a famous or slightly famous person like me sing you a song or 
improvise a song out of something that's going on in your life or you want a pep talk or you just want some encouragement or you want me to make you a wake-up call, um, then you can do that via this app called Cameo.com. But they've just started to do things um, where you can call me up and all the money, by the way, goes to the Creative Passport, which is a non-profit, which I won't benefit from in money-wise. Um, and so people are like calling me up going, Imogen, they've got three minutes. Um, Imogen, I really want to do you some a, a lyric video. Can I do a lyric video? I'm like, what? Okay, um, that'd be great. Actually, I've got this song coming up, blah, blah, blah. So we're actually doing like business on this, on these, like, obviously sometimes they're just like, Imogen, I just wanted you to know that I really love this song and it really helped me through this time. And that's what they want to say. Or it could be somebody the other day um, called me up and the first thing they did was just started playing and singing to me on the piano. They were like, I've always wanted to sing you a song and now I've done it. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> Thanks for paying me to sing me a song. Um, it's just been fun. So you could try that. Um, but there's also just, you know, the standard way of just emailing me, which is info at imaginheap.com. And at some point, um, we will we'll get back to you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for your time, Amy. It's always fascinating to chat to you. And you have so much, uh, you've done so much in this area and there's so many things that people can dig into. And thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, as always, on your podcast platform of choice, please leave us your comments, your ratings, other people you want to um, us to talk to, and come back and listen to some more. So thanks very much. <laughs>